do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Ayo weirdos, the kettle's boiled, welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and hopefully my guest today, a clear-headed man of science, will be forced to accept the horrifying facts. Welcome, Graham Humphreys. How are you doing, mate? I'm very well, thank you. What have you been up to? A bit busy, I would uh, imagine, judging by your sort of Facebook feed and uh, jet-setting all over the place. <laughs> I wouldn't call it jet-setting. <laughs> but no, I just came back from a, a two-week trip to Transylvania, something I've always dreamt of doing. And um, in the company of Dacre Stoker, the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker, so we had a, a very good guide. And if that weren't enough, we also had uh, Victoria Price, the daughter of Vincent Price, along for the tow as well. And we um, uh, basically followed in um, the footsteps of uh, Jonathan Harker in the latter part of the trip. So we took the uh, journey from Bistritz to um, the geographic location of Castle Dracula, on the, uh, which is actually Bram Stoker set it on the rim of a caldera, uh, an extinct volcano, and uh, with, with very precise... Um, um, coordinates, although of course there is no castle there. Um, the the castle appears to be modelled on um, exterior-wise Brown Castle, uh, which we also visited, and um, Slane's Castle for the interior, which is in Scotland. Uh, so yeah, um, so that was uh, <laughs> that was a couple of weeks ago anyway. <laughs> well, that that knocks my week into a cocked hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I managed to get to Lidl. Um, that's about the extent of my excitement for last week. You buy some steaks. Uh, yeah, oh, no, well, you know. Uh, uh, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, you know, you, you had me at Transylvania, but then you throw in like uh, re- relatives of Stoker and uh, Vincent Price. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's uh, yeah, I'm speechless. Fantastic. Well, well, for a horror fan, of course, it's just a dream come true, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Graham, do you want to... Obviously, lots of people will know who you are through your artwork and and various bits and pieces, and you being... um, You've got this kind of synonymous link with various forms of horror in terms of the artwork you've you've created for various Blu-ray companies or whatever. Um, But... And I'm sure that even if people aren't aware of your name, they they have pos- if they're into horror, they've probably got some of your artwork on their DVD or Blu-ray shelves. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do and, 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 and the kind of stuff you're into? Yeah, certainly. Um, I trained as a graphic designer. Um, so I went to art college and uh, uh, with the intention fully of going into um, illustration, and uh, so I graduated in 1980 um, and um, became freelance straight away. And I've been freelance ever since. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been, um, um, you know, one of those, it, it's a rocky ride, you know, being freelance and, um, you know, periods of having no money and, and just desperately trying to look for work. But, uh, you know, I, I had a couple of couple of lucky breaks. And um, one of those uh, first breaks was um, uh, meeting Palace Pictures and... Um, 
uh, getting the commission for the Evil Dead UK campaign and um, shortly thereafter uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. So two completely different posters, but um, hopefully uh, at the point I did Nightmare on Elm Street, it kind of showed that, um, you know, I wasn't just a one-trick pony, hopefully, um, in terms of, you know, technique and, and uh, uh, sort of how I represent faces. I mean, my early work was very cartoony. Um, you know, I, I like humour and I use humour quite a lot and uh, um, it's not always apparent in the work, but um, I'm usually having a laugh as I'm, <laughs> as I'm painting. Uh, but yeah, I think the Norman Elm Street poster really was um, uh, an attempt at doing something a little bit more serious, I guess, technique-wise. And uh, really from then on, um, you know, work came in dribs and drabs. And I, I guess one of the things that really... Um, changed my career at a, point, at a certain point in time was when um, desktop computing um, uh, became uh, such an essential part of a studio, design studio, uh, that uh, illustration did, did kind of actually drop away as a solution for, for people. And, um, you know, uh, VHS covers were suddenly uh, uh, flooded with um, images which were just cheaply photoshopped, you know, quite crudely done. and. Um, it just seemed like a new thing that everybody wanted to use and um you know suddenly illustration kind of fell by the wayside and for myself because i trained as a graphic designer as well um i was able to um supplement uh my work my income with um just jobbing design work i did a lot of work with uh, tartan films for a 10-year period that really kind of covered the break between um, um the loss of illustration work through to it's kind of renaissance, I guess, really, which uh, I would um, probably say for myself, certainly began with um, Arrow Films, who, who started commissioning yeah. um, new artwork. Uh, and that, that was really primarily about um, recreating the feel of uh, um, video covers of the 1980s. And that's really why they came to me. Initially, they had a um, film Slaughter High, 1980s film, and they wanted a new cover, but they wanted to go back to... Uh, the sort of techniques and the look of, of a, a 80s VHS video. And, and it, for me, it's always been a bit weird thing because I don't see my work as being of that era in a way because when I um, created the artwork for The Evil Dead, it was very much for me, uh, looking back at the 1940s and 50s um, horror film posters and, um, you know, that that's what I was trying to do, a sort of pastiche of, you know, kind of a, a whole... Um, era of um, you know fantastically painted posters, which would quite often be you know not not technically proficient, but um, you know, suffic uh, sufficiently gaudy and uh, um, uh, sort of alluring um, that they functioned probably in some ways better than the films themselves. And um, and that that was always the thing that's fascinating to me was how film posters uh, became the sort of the the, the 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 main attraction, if you like, and um, the films were very often just not going to live up to the promise and uh, I've always been interested in the theatrics of posters for that reason um, uh, you know less so than the films they represented yeah well I mean uh, we mentioned this on the last episode actually when I was talking to Neil Kulkarni and we were talking about our you know growing up and our, our experience with those some of those it has to be said uh, quite dodgy sort of video rental places you know who and you got these kind of uh, purveyors who, who were kind of weren't, weren't, weren't past basically 
putting out pornography to 12 year olds or whatever but part of that experience was it was those covers they were your gateway into horror at that time it were the covers for those vhs's and they would probably you know because you couldn't access there's no internet you couldn't go on and find a review or whatever you were relying completely on those covers so I, I thank you, sir, for that for that that effort that you put in a lot amongst other artists. <laughs> um, that, so that's a really interesting point because the, the video shops, yeah, but they, they, it was like a, you know before that you were before home entertainment as such. You know, you you, you relied on the cinemas, and um, so you might see a few posters around town, um, local cinema, or perhaps in the newspaper ads, magazine ads. But really, when you walked into a VHS shop, it's like going to a thousand cinemas because the posters were everywhere. The shelves were just full of all these images. So it was it was like, you know, being a kid in a candy shop. And um, yes, you're right. Some <laughs> There were some dodgy purveyors. And it, it was like, you know, go to your local <laughs> drug dealer. <laughs> well, Not like I ever did. Well, a lot of these, like, I think, you know, where I lived... A little place called Sutton Ashfield, like a soon-to-be ex-mining town. You can imagine the place. Uh, and there was there was a, a shop there called Venus Videos, which was amazing. And upstairs they had what was called the Horror Cavern, and so you used to go in there, and it was all decked out like a horror cavern. And and you know it wasn't until years later because you'd always kind of assumed that the guy running it was really into horror, and then you, you know it's disappointing. He had he had no interest in horror whatsoever. He just got some redundancy money, set up a video shop, and and realised that most of the money was in kind of extreme horror or pornography. You know. <laughs> so, um, okay, so. Other than this kind of, obviously, the artwork and all that stuff, what, in terms of growing up, what was your entry point into horror and horror films? Well, it would have been um, TV stuff that I would have seen as a kid, um, which would kind of give me the first uh, hints, I guess, though. So I was born in 1960 and, and um, probably... If you think about Doctor Who, 1963, I, I believe that was. Um, so I, I, I did have vague memories of watching that, you know, in, in its first incarnation with William Hartnell. And um, uh, then, you know, they started uh, running episodes of um, The Monsters and um, Adam's Family and uh, Lost in Space. So all those programmes became my first entry into horror um, and uh I think by the time I was about 10 or 11, um, I was becoming a bit more aware of the universal uh, legacy, horror legacy, and um, and kind of re suddenly realising that the monsters, you know, kind of um, were actually just representation of some of the universal uh, horror monsters and um, uh, kind of seeing lots of images in books and um, magazines. Uh, universal horror suddenly became quite big, you know, around that time, obviously, for... Uh, you know, as monster kids of the seventies, I guess. Um, you know, uh, from what I understand, this was because um, um, there are a lot of American uh, channels waiting to be filled with stuff, and um, cheapest stuff to fill them with was uh, old black and white films. And um, you know, a lot, of, like, a lot of these were the um, Universal monster films, which had just proved a big hit with kids, and uh, it suddenly just kickstarted this whole kind of uh, revival thing. And um, 
uh, and I think really, you know, just buying the, the Aurora Monster kits at the time um, just really kind of uh, uh, cemented my love of horror. And um, really, I haven't looked back um, from that period. And still to this very day, you know, I, I have all the Aurora Monster kits up in a cupboard and uh, all those things of that period I surround myself with still because to me it's vital just to, to, to retain that, that um spark of what inspired me at the time and so everything i do now is still inspired by my kind of the thrill of all that stuff i was discovering um and uh you know if i can retain that enthusiasm then um you know hopefully work will still uh remain as um you know exciting for me to do as it is for um other people to see yeah i mean um i think that's interesting because i think um for you know, I I I I was born in 1970. You know, so I had kind of very typical 70s parents that were, you know, thankfully very lax in in letting me access things that possibly might be denied to youngsters these days. So, you know, for me it was those the Alan Frank books and it was the Dennis Gifford books and those. You know, God bless them, those, uh, you know, Saturday night double bills and things, those BBC Two things. And later on, you know, things like Movie Drome, you know, much later on. But, yeah, and I think it was those, a lot of those double bills, um, you know, now we've got streaming, you can access anything. But I think the key thing for me with those double bills, particularly on BBC Two, it felt like there was a, a sense of that they were being curated. And, and you know, someone had lovingly picked these out. It, they weren't just thrown on there. And, and it, it, it was absolutely part and parcel of my film education, you know. Because if you get into those films, then suddenly other black and white films seem appealing, you know, and you can you can there's a whole new world. And I think also it's the idea of growing up with three channels. That sounds like a limitation, but actually it opens your entire world up because you would sit through things that you wouldn't necessarily have planned sitting through. You know, don't get me wrong, if I was eight years old and they'd had a 24-hour cartoon channel, I'd be watching that. But they weren't. So you ended up accessing things that you would never have accessed as a kid. So to me, it was a kind of... I, I, I hesitate with, with, with terms like golden age, but there were certainly... There were lots of things about that period, lots of awful things about that period, but lots of really... For a kid, I think... If you're an adult in the 70s, it was a bit grim. If you're a kid in the 70s, it was amazing. Um, this is true. <laughs> yeah, I agree. No, I, I think, yeah, certainly uh, uh, that was my introduction to um, Hammer films, for instance. Also the, you know, whole, uh, the whole Roger Corman, yeah. Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe cycle, which, you know, they, they were, you know, for me, quite terrifying as a you know, 10-year-old, 11-year-old. Um, but you know, at the same time, um, you know they, they kind of just drew you in, and um, you know it, it was possible not to watch. I mean, even if it's between you know fingers. Um, but uh, and, and of course, my first viewing all these films was um, just on a tiny little black and white TV in my bedroom, and that, that's when I was allowed to watch them. 
And uh, so I didn't see m most of this stuff in color until much later, until my teens. And, uh, you know, that was a bit of a revelation. Because, you know, the Hammer films, especially in the Roger Corman films, were, you know, it, it absolutely designed to make full use of color and, um, you know, shout it out in, in such a huge way. And, um, you know, th th those, those color palettes absolutely influenced my work. Okay, so we're going to go into the film that we're going to be covering today is The Plague of the Zombies, a Hammer production from 1966, directed by John Gilly. But no corpse can remain at peace in this village of the undead, this land of the zombies. In this place, no one is safe. No one can hide from witchcraft, superstition, and fear. No! So, Graham, when was the first time you came across this film? Well, as we discussed, it was probably um, one of those double bills. Um, I would have been about uh, 12, 13 years old, um, watching it in black and white on, you know, late night on the TV. And, um, you know, I had no expectations or anything other than the fact, you know, you had a title which was, um, you know, promised um, you know, quite a lot. And um, I think it really delivered. And, um, you know, for an impressionable mind, it really um, what, what, what really hit all the buttons. And, of course, I wasn't that familiar with Hammer quite as much as I am now, to the extent that, um, you know, it, it was a Hammer film uh, which didn't have Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing um thus it wasn't a sort of a top marquee in the hammer canon but um of course it was a double build with uh dracula prince of darkness so you know it, it, it nevertheless was did have the presence i guess of uh christopher lee there um but i think it's one of those rare films which you know probably was never intended to be um uh, anything other than a support uh support act and yet um, transcended that just because I think it was a, such a well-made film and, um, um, you know, the acting elevated it as well, though, and uh, use of sets and, and real locations, um, you know, gave it a quality, which uh, um, I think, you know, some of the other maybe sort of a marquee Hammer titles may have lacked occasionally. And um, and just, you know, the subject matter itself, you could see where uh, Hammer uh, were, were struggling to, well, not struggling, but... Um, are very keen to exploit all the universal uh, franchise um, from you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, obviously, um, uh, Phantom of the Opera, um, all, all these kind of monsters being represented. And then you had these very old um, kind of things like the Gorgon, you know, which is, it, it doesn't seem to have any um, uh, uh, sort of origin anywhere in film, really, other than that, that amazing Hammer film. And uh, Plague of the Zombies... I mean, really, in terms of zombies, they hadn't really been explored. I don't think um, very much in cinema at that point. So it was quite an unusual film, really, because um, it wasn't a recognisably universal uh, a product, but it was, uh, um, you know, it had its feel of um, some sort of vintage provenance along the line somewhere. I mean, I, I think we're going to be talking about the whole zombie genre um, a bit later, but um, I mean, for me, it was just, this kind of very odd um, film in its own little world, which didn't really seem to relate to any other of the Hammer canon at all, and, and, and indeed to a lot of other films that I'd seen at the time. Yeah, I, I mean, um, 
again, I think my first access to this film was the Alan Frank book. It was the 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 still image of the the vicar or the priest or whatever being strangled by the guy in in the mask, uh, and and that was just it. Just what what is this? You know, um, I I think watching it again. I mean, I was, we'll go into more aspects, but I think um, watching it again. Um, obviously, it was like it was made back to back with the reptile. Um, so you've, you obviously they they filmed most things at Bray Bray Studios and all this. So it's got this kind of similar feel. But I think because you had your your A Hammer films and your B Hammer films, I think sometimes those B Hammer films were sometimes a little bit more interesting and they had different angles. And I think one of the things that leaps out to me from this is the a little bit like um, Frankenstein Created Woman. It It's very much about class. And, you know, and I think not that I'm suggesting that Hammer as a company were interested in putting political vehicles over. They weren't. But... They knew their audience and they were appealing to a particular working class customer. And one of the things about that was that often in Hammer films, it was about the rich aristocrat taking too much power. And 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 they them coming to uh, coming a cropper at the end of the film. But this is, you know. A lot of those films, particularly this one and uh, Frankenstein Created Woman, it is about these kind of little enclaves of the aristocracy running amok um, only to, to, to end up being vanquished at the end. And there is, you know, even if you take it at its basis level in terms of hammer villains, you know, Baron Frankenstein, uh, the Count, these are aristocracy that end up, you know, getting staked or burnt or beheaded or whatever. So, yeah, they weren't trying to make political points, but they absolutely knew their audience. And I think Christopher Lee, you know, he talked about it later on, that he was he was quite averse to a lot of those British New Wave um, kitchen sink dramas because he saw them as being too real and who wanted to pay for... Uh, you know, your hard-earned cash to go to the cinema on a Saturday night and, and look at yourself on the screen. And he he was a big advocate of this escapism. And I think Hammer absolutely uh, delivered on that. But, you know, directors like John Gilling arguably were kind of sneakily getting other things in there as well. Um, yeah, I, so I, I think it's, um, uh, you know, part and parcel what Hammer were doing. But... Um, what, how would you describe, I mean, what, it sounds like an obvious question, but what is the importance of Hammer? Why was Hammer so important in terms of what they did in terms of horror particularly? Well, I think that uh, from from my own observation, if you look at the, the uh, really, I'm not talking about the horror films, um, from the earliest ones through to the very final um, films that, that uh, um, you, you can chart um, popular culture in some ways, um, um, the ways in which um, certain things had become um, acceptable, uh, how uh, 
you know, uptight people were in some of those, you know, 1958, um, Dracula um, and, and Frankenstein, you know, this, these very well-defined uh, class systems in there. And uh, and uh, really the sort of restraint in there, that this is sort of slight, you know, um, mustiness of Victoriana. Uh, and then as it gets through to um, um, the 60s, where obviously... Uh, um, culturally things were changing you 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 then got you know the sort of overt sexuality and um um obviously uh censorship changed as well though so um so subtly you could just see the era seeping into those films even though they were period films but you know they period films with a sort of 60 sensibility and, and you know it, it, that certainly carried through into the 1970s early 1970s as well where the sensibilities of the time were, i mean obviously um car crashingly um awful in some ways but um delightful to watch now uh dracula ad 72 which you know actually brought the whole kind of um vintage horror right up into uh the contemporary world and um um and uh, you know, to me, it was just fascinating. Just you know, you can see these little pockets of uh, of um, sort of artifacts of their time, I guess. Though, and kind of how, get a hint of how the world was at the time those films were made. So, I think you, you hinted about the the political edge in um, *Plague of the Zombies* and, and, and to an extent, *Reptile* as well. Well, absolutely, that's one of the reasons why I love the film so much because it is, you know, you get the it it just it just smells of revolution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you know, where's the guillotine? And of course, we saw the guillotine. Um, uh, I think it's, uh, it, it, I think Frankenstein ends with the the guillotine, you know, March to the guillotine and um, um, opens, Adventure Frankenstein opens with the guillotine. So already revolution is in the air, if you like. Um, and I think that uh, this this uh, idea of um, working classes versus aristocracy, which, you know, it's still, it, we still have this now in, in an absurd kind of way. But, um, I think what's interesting is that um, one of the other things that's fascinating about Plague of Zombies, it almost, uh, uh, um, it's this little vision into the future where um, the new aristocracy, which is uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher's conservative government um, um, uh, versus, you know, the, the coal miners. I mean, it's just, it, it's kind of, it, this kind of weird cartoony version of that, if you like, though. And, um, um, whereas, of course, um, Squire Hamilton does get his comeuppance, and uh, unfortunately, kind of get that way. But, uh, um, but yeah, it, to me, it's fascinating just seeing how how these little ideas um, um, insinuate themselves in, in a film. And uh, certainly, uh, I mean, I, I, I've you know, been reading about uh, *Play the Zombies* and other people's readings of it as well. And one of the things about uh, *Play the Zombies* and *The Reptile* is that, that it kind of both both um, reference. Um, you know, uh, 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 adventurers, um, obviously wealthy adventurers, bringing back something terrible from the from this mysterious east. Uh, you know, colonial adventures um, uh, where where you know, the, the precious things are brought back by um, the aristocracy and uh, are unleashed upon um, the um, un unwitting population. Uh, and yeah, you, you, you get this fear of the exotic and also this. Um, insufferable colonial um power which is held by you know very small um percentage of the population uh, so so in both films you kind of get this sense that um you know we're, we're under attack from um really our, our own 
you know, colonial and empirical past. And to me, that's quite interesting as well. Yeah, it's it's, it's weird because it is, by, I mean, we play Gazomblis and um, the Reptile in some ways. It, like you say, there is this kind of um, whiff of anti-colonialism, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, as as is one from films of that age, they still managed to be vaguely racist as well. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, like the, the black characters in uh, Plague of Zombies obviously don't get much uh, uh, shake of the stick, do they? they just, they're just there as the, the, the random voodoo sort of characters. Uh, you know, at one point, I, I did kind of expect uh, Biff Bailey from uh, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors to start playing his voodoo stuff over this. Uh, so there is that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but I—I I mean, it's—it's it, it's a weird one. Um, and there is uh, there's, there's kind of a lot to unpack in this film, I think. Um, so yeah, just just to get back to Hammer <clears throat> for a second, because it is, I think, what possibly a lot of people don't necessarily get about Hammer, as in a company, is that it. It's got a, a much longer shelf life than people imagine. I think people see it as, in terms of Hammer Horror, just kind of bursting out of the mid-50s, which is what it kind of did. But it goes right back to 1934. And a lot of people aren't aware that Hammer were kind of responsible for films like um, Mystery of the Marie Celeste, which when they poached Bela Lugosi for, you know, so it's a very early sort of British film. But obviously they had problems before the war and then they went into kind of liquidation and they were they were bought out by exclusive and then they became the film wing of that. And they did a lot of these kind of taking radio dramas like Dick Barton and uh, The Man in Black and turning those into films. And they made a limited amount of money out of that. But, you know, as I say, it wasn't really till that they came up with the idea of um, taking Nigel Neal's TV show, the you know Quatermass Experiment, and making it into this kind of sci-fi horror film, and they become this big thing, which kind of leads then to them creating other, the more classic horror films, like obviously The Curse of Frankenstein. I think one of my favourite kind of little factoids is that Milton Sabosky, who ended up being co-founder of Amicus, which was one of Hammer's, Hammer's um, key rivals, really, at that time. Um, he kind of really came up with the idea of doing a, a revised version of Frankenstein, which he took to Hammer. And they kind of uh, poo-pooed it, really, and said, no, we don't want to do that. And then as soon as he'd gone, they kind of created this Curse of the Frankenstein, which... You know, whatever the ins and outs of, I think that really, really knocked him. <laughs> so I like the idea that Amicus really comes out of this bitterness. You know, he was the, it was really turned into a pissing contest between him and Hammer after that. Uh, but I, but I, I think the other thing is that with Hammer. Yeah, obviously, people like us, we're going to be attracted mainly to the Hammer horror stuff. And that is what most people will understand Hammer to be. But it's the fact that they were this, you know, for a while, they, they were part and parcel of saving the British film industry. And 
that they created a whole host of different films. And I think sometimes for myself, I I love the those those technical Eastman colour horror films they did. They are absolutely emblazoned on my mind. They are just my, some of my favourite films. But I think once you've seen them over and over, you end up exploring the other stuff. You know, they did these kind of pirate films and war films and psychological thrillers, and they're all really good. And And the other thing is that, you know, Hammer was, you know, People talk about it being a production line, which it definitely was. You know, they would often, they would come up with the idea for the film and the poster before they'd written the script. So there's definitely this idea of production line. But I think people tend to use that as a a negative thing. Whereas I think, well, the clothes you're wearing or, you know, the things in your cupboards, they've all been made on a production line. Production line doesn't necessarily mean crap. It means efficient. And I think Hammer absolutely were efficient. Everything that comes out of Hammer, whether it's those psychological thrillers, the pirate films, or, you know, the the horror films, they have a look and feel. They're usually about 87 to 88 minutes long, you know, and they do the job. They absolutely do the job. Yeah, well, I think uh, the other part of that is um, uh, how, how they use their budgets, which obviously were limited and also um resources which are you know literally location uh studio um um and, and you know all, all these kind of basic filmmaking things um but it's all about how you use those limitations to create something um quite you know which looks quite good and i think you know um probably it really uh stressed this sort of um the the sort of the, the talents of all the people involved um you know creating a uh, say for instance a um transylvanian village in, in windsor you know on some sort of little backlock and as we know that uh um play the zombies and um reptile were shot back to back using the same sets and uh you know you can see how um also they they've cobbled together elements from um the previous um hammer films as well and uh how, how uh you know just on the same stage you know you know you've got a a sort of a staircase which you can redress and you know decorate in different ways and just move one side to the other and you got a balcony which you can just you know repurpose and um um it's just fascinating to once you actually understand this and you're looking at the films you know you have to appreciate the genius of how how a limited budget can be um really stretched and used um and that's all just down to this incredible team of very very talented people and also the, the lighting of the films, I think, especially the early um, color horror films, uh, you, know, you, you, you sense that um, these were lit by men who really, uh, possibly ladies as well, you know, it's they're just a bit of a man's world then, unfortunately. But um, the idea that uh, they were lighting for black and white, and um, but then using color as well. So you had a very skillful sculptural um, uh, um, look uh, in the cinematography, which... Uh, I think kind of got a bit lost in some of the later Hammer films. Um, but, um, you know, I think because I watched all these films in black and white originally, you know, they 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 didn't look flat at all. They very, looked very, very sculptural. And, um, you know, the lighting made sure that, you know, you could see everything that was going on and it, it looked atmospheric. And I think probably uh, some of the early Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe films actually also um, employed 
the use of people who really understood lighting for black and white. So once you start um, piling on the colours as well, you just get this kind of riot, uh, cinematic riot. It just looks fantastic. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's... Um, I remember watching a uh, an interview with um, the man that lit um, for Jack Hill, Spider Baby, which, uh, you know, is an old yeah, yeah. 1960s film with um, Lon Chaney Jr. But he was talking exactly about, you know, lighting for black and white, how, how you know, much more challenging it is than lighting for colour. And he was saying that basically anybody can light for colour, you just point the camera and the colours do everything for you. Whereas with black and white, you, you really have to... You know, look at your sort of uh, uh, the different planes of vision. You, you, you know, looking at perspective and um, highlighting, you know, uh, uh, things in a way that actually you wouldn't have to consider with with colour. And um, he, he was joking about because uh, during the interview, there was, you could hear some dogs barking outside, and um, he was saying, "God, even those dogs could light for colour," <laughs> which is probably quite true. Um, so yeah, I think there was a, a, a wonderful skill to to all the technicians they they employed. I think that's quite lucky to have actually had some very um uh, very talented people which really made those films um look far better than they needed to be really given the budget but it just made them very special i think and um you know they they, they had a, a a great roster of character actors you know people who didn't it, they weren't attractive people uh, by the usual standards of film but some um, but they were just great characters and it just gave us a, a breath to the films which i think you know might have been lacking otherwise though um and i think probably you know you, you, you i think he hinted at this whole kind of uh, you know well discussed family um aspect to hammer that there was very much a sort of family thing because you had the, the same people that being employed over and over again so you kind of knew what you were getting with, with hammer and um and i think what you got was actually some of the very best people who could deliver a film with on a small budget and uh, I mean, for somebody like me as well, also going to some of those locations and just seeing, you know, how, how smartly used, um, you know, Brave Studios, they use a lot of external uh, sets. Um, I mean, you, can, you know, they're, they're, you can get close enough to Brave Studios to see maybe where uh, that, that set for uh, the Cornish Village might have been built. And um, obviously the use of Oakley Court, which was just literally just a field's distance away. And um, even... Watching um, uh, the 1958 Dracula, uh, there's a scene where um, Peter Cushing's almost, Van Helsing is almost run over by the coach, it's Dracula's coffin being um, you know, carried away outside the castle. And uh, you just get this glimpse of Oakley Court in the background. You know, it's supposed to be Transylvania, you know, but, you know, Oakley Court, Windsor is still there in the background between the trees. Yeah, yeah, I, I love yeah, all yeah. that stuff, though. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, I think, about Hammer is, is it progressed, I think, later. I think they did some really good stuff in the early 70s. I think some of those, uh, you know, things like Countess Dracula were really interesting. And, you know, later you, you, you've got um, Captain Kronos and things like that. Um, but I think what's interesting is much later on, particularly in terms of the Hammer, Hammer House of Horror TV show, that feels... That is more like an amicus production. It's much more kitchen sink. It's much more modern day. It's kind of, there's not a lot of hammer aspects of it, really. It feels much more like an amicus TV show. And also, but, they, you know, they were clearly um, trying to appeal um, for the sort of, the, the, well, the taste of the time and um, really sort of 
I guess, pushing to see how far they could go. So, you know, your very opening um, story in that, that Hammer House of Horror uh, gives you um, uh, Patricia Quinn, you know, kind of completely naked. And um, yeah, so they, they you know, really went for the nudity in quite a big way. But also, the, you know, you, you get a sense that it's um, sometimes it feels like documentary filming in a way. I mean, um, yeah, where they use a lot of real locations uh, rather than being set bound. And uh, so you get all the, um, you know, external noises of the road going on because they, you know, they're, they're obviously working to a budget again. So there's not much control over the sound, really. You kind of got what you recorded uh, on that day uh, with very little sort of post um, sound work as, as, I, as far as I could see. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the budgets were still there, but they were absolutely experimenting with taking things out of the studio and at, certainly out of the um you know the period settings which had uh, defined um the early uh hammer horror stuff and um you know which in, in some ways you kind of you, 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 that's probably what made them less hammer horror um if you like uh i mean you know it's interesting how did experiment with um you know bringing stuff up to date you know some of the, the classic stuff so for instance you've got uh dracula ad 72 and satanic watch dracula and set in um contemporary london <clears throat> but yet they went back to um you know scars of dracula um was very much set in the past again and uh of course very last in the uh frankenstein cycle uh frankenstein and the monster from hell goes right back to its um period setting again then so it's almost like they kind of sense that they were losing the, the very essence of what made those films great at the time and having experimented with um, something to more contemporary taste, um, I think perhaps kind of almost you, you got a, a sense of regret, perhaps though. Um, but you know, the, the, it's interesting when you look at the end of Hammer, uh, Hammer Horror in particular. Um, you know, it's cited as being um, part, partly due to you know, films like The Exorcist being released, which has kind of redefined horror. You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, all, all these um, newer films, which kind of explored horror in a very different kind of way, and um, far removed from, I guess, the European roots, which were always at the heart of uh, the uh, Universal monsters. I mean, it all seems to be European monsters. Um, yeah. Whereas suddenly you had um, stuff which actually was quintessentially American, and um, you know, it's very hard to compete with that and the bigger budgets as well. But um, my understanding is really what killed Hammer was just. Uh, um, um, something far more um, um, mundane. It was um, the oil, em oil embargo, which meant that um, in the seventies, which meant that actually American money was pulled from from productions, and um, the whole financing structures were kind of went all over the place. And uh, uh, Hammer lost out for that reason. Um, so we can <laughs> maybe just blame the Saudis for this. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, what's also interesting about that period is that particularly if you look at those Amicus and Hammer films and even Tygon and things like that, because, you know, obviously, negatively, the film industry was on its knees, but conversely, it also meant that smaller productions could employ, you know, big name actors. So that's why you're getting some of those top, you, whatever you think about, I love Amicus films, but whatever you think about them, the casting was absolutely top notch, and it was same, you know, same in a lot of those Hammer films as well. Um, so getting back to Plague of Zombies, then, 
Okay, so this was your personal choice. I like this film a lot. But what what would you say are to a non sort of person who's not necessarily um, familiar with this film? What are the key scenes? Do you think? Well, there's one big shock moment which I think you know has has defined this film for many people. It's the uh, um, the scene at the uh, the, the minehead where. Um, um, Sylvia's you know, character, Sylvia, uh, is, is lost pretty much in, in the woods, and um, the mine is just there, right in front of it. It's a tin mine, and um, she encounters um, this sort of shock zombie moment. Basically, turns around to see uh, this the zombie uh, character carrying the, the lifeless body of um, Jacqueline Pierce's character, uh, Alice, and literally just does this horrible laugh and just tosses the body. Uh, down the hill and it's, it's such a, a, a surprise moment because the makeup effect is absolutely fantastic and really really quite unpleasant and it's just the the nasty cruel edge to that as well though it's just um i mean it's you know still quite a shocking moment i think though it just works so well and there are a couple of other moments it's the um uh the funeral procession over the bridge which is interrupted by um the the fox hunting party and uh, the coffin falls off the bridge into onto the riverbed, and um, you know the lid falls off, and you just get this kind of big zoom uh, onto the, the 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 corpse's face, which is very much a sort of a, a trick that uh, Roger Corman used to great effect in many of his Edgar Allan Poe cycle films. This sudden zoom in, uh, and you know you can see the grain on the film, but it just and it's almost like frozen, but it just forces you just to look at this kind of face suddenly quite close up and. It, 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 they don't want to um but yeah that, that's just a, a fantastic uh duo um in the film but you know there are other things as well of course very subtle things i noticed that the uh the lighting around jacqueline pierce's character alice when she's unwell um you, you get all these sickly yellow hues it's kind of lit in a particular way just to kind of denote this, the, the illness and um and I've, I've made other notes as well for instance um uh i mean for instance the oh the, the um one of the other things i did notice was, was quite interesting was uh although you have the squire hamilton kind of the aristocratic monster if you like um who's you know unleashing all this madness um it's it's the um people he surrounds himself with who are these uh young men who are um you know, described as fox hunters and uh, i've seen in um Look on IMDb. The the the, the, the actors are credited as Young Bloods, who obviously did the Fox Hunters, and um, really there, of course, there are his accomplices in um, um, the sort of voodoo rituals and uh, in in controlling the um, slaves who are the zombies in the in the tin mine. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the the, the 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 there's a whole scene where um, they're basically going to rape. Um, it seems um, um, Sylvia and. Uh, it reminded me of um, a recent film um, called um, the the uh, Riot Club, which was based on a play called Posh, which is yeah. essentially about the Bullington Club. And um, you kind of you know, really got a sense of the Bullington Club in this moment, like these kind of uh, overprivileged young men who are just you know living life to the excess, just drinking, you know, whoring, and uh, <clears throat> just being pretty unpleasant dicks, basically. And um, it was another little moment which uh, you know I thought had a nice little political uh, content but other weird odd little things obviously of its time um 
whilst not being, I would say, misogynist as, as such, it was certainly sexist in as much of the time, the women were always, you know, uh, confined to, um, you know, these kind of um, uh, sort of, you know, off to the kitchen with you kind of roles. And uh, there's a fantastic little bit of dialogue, which is um, when uh, uh, Sir James arrives at, um, at the house to meet um, his former pupil, uh, Doctor, uh, and um, immediately it's all about, you know, we like a cup of tea and it's all about making tea. And uh, and uh, anyway, James says, um, I don't suppose there's anything stronger. And um, Sarah so says, well, I can ask. So no, 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 no problem. I'll slip out later. And so if, you know, you ladies stay here and I'm going to go to the pub, which he does actually, <laughs> uh, which is quite funny. And um, yeah, and uh, I think um, there's an evening meal and uh, he's there with the doctor and um, just says to the girls, uh, okay, girls, you can run along to bed now whilst the men talk. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's a bizarre scene, which is almost comedic where the two guys are actually doing the washing up. Washing the parts, yeah. Of course, both of them are <laughs> played because they're so bloody useless. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 don't know, I don't know if you're going to come to this, but uh, for me, it, it's that dream sequence. That's, that, that is just the... It's kind of like the midway point between your, your 1930s... Uh, white zombie I walked with a zombie and your Romero kind of zombies which came slightly later on and it's just this incredible nightmare it, it is almost kind of Lynchian it's just it's absolutely incredible well it is uh, very much the uh, the little toy in the kinder egg because <laughs> it's the um, that's the scene which of course everybody references and um, of course it is uh, astonishing because it's um you know, because it's lovely, queasy, dreamlike feel. Again, I thought reminiscent of um, um, it's something you see in all, all, all those Roger Corman films that post cycle have this, a dream sequence, which is all it has a distorted angles and distorted uh, uh, um, um, kind of colours, and um, you know a lot of um, you know mist as well, uh, just to further that, but. It's just lovely because it, it really gives you the full zombie um, experience, you know, the kind of dead rising from the, their graves. And something you only saw again, um, <clears throat> a point was made that um, although there was never another zombie film per se in the Hammer um, catalogue, <clears throat> I think uh, uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires does have zombie characters. So you, you get, again, you get that, um, you, you just see them rising from the, from the dirt you know, shaking off the dirt as they rise, with the hands coming up. But yeah, it's such a, a powerful, a powerful scene, and um, and, and of course it, it culminates in a decapitation, which um, you know, is as effective as it could be with a budget, um, with a big rubber head. But uh, um, but yeah, it's still quite shocking. Also, you just get that fantastic little moment, although nobody's really talked about zombies really much uh, at that to that point, but um. You just get the character, main character, shouting out "zombie," and um, you know you, you get the full um, I say the zombie packages. It really encapsulates in that one scene. So where where does this? Where do you think this fits then, in terms of the wider kind of zombie context? Because I think what's what's interesting is that you know, like I said, were those kind of the earliest kind of forms of zombie films are you sort of night your white zombie from 1932 with Bela Lugosi and 
you know, I walk with a zombie and, and, and they were very much fixated on, you know, very this, this kind of colonial thing and all this kind of on the island and it's kind of the exotic as evil or, you know, the foreign as evil, all this kind of stuff. Well, it's interesting because um, I think, you know, White Zombie is is absolutely a reference point here because um, I think you mentioned it earlier on as well. Uh, you know, whereas in Playing the Zombies, we, we have uh, aristocratic, you know, uh, uh, um, monsters such um, basically murdering um, the locals uh, so that they can work in a tin mine, which is too dangerous for the living to work in. So, you know, it's got the dead working in there. And of course, you don't have to pay them at all. Uh, so not even a minimum wage. Um, but uh, in White Zombie, of course, it's a very similar situation where you have um, uh, this aristocratic type character once again. I mean, it's Bella Lugosi almost revisiting his Dracula role in a very sort of gothic setting. Um, but um, he, he's turning locals into zombies, basically to work in his uh, sugarcane mill. Um, again, you know, it's no minimum wage there either. So it's uh, all about exploitation. Uh, whereas White Zombie, obviously... Um, you know, uh, um, you know, absolutely is referencing slavery. Um, um, Plague of the Zombies is not so much the slavery is, um, you know, kind of, a, uh, uh, I guess, you know, once again, exploitation of workers, really, though. Um, but uh, without that, the the colonial um, trapping as such. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I think um, with. Uh, when you look at White Zombie, that was apparently the first film to make a direct reference to zombies, I, I believe. Yeah. In a piece of dialogue. Uh, um, you know, otherwise they're kind of the undead, living dead. Uh, but yeah, that, that again is very much located in Haiti, um, which is, you know, the sort of source of the voodoo um, um, kind of legends, I guess, of zombification. Uh, whereas. Um, in Play of the Zombies, they have some Haitians, um, the, the gentleman you mentioned earlier on, who are basically just there as uh, sort of um, set decoration banging drums. Um, but at least they didn't have people blacked up, which you know some of, uh, some of the other Hammer films did do. Uh, but what was interesting is also uh, the so 1966 Play of the Zombies. So 1964 was uh, Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, and uh, although they're not described as zombies, I don't believe. Um, they're kind of the, 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 it's basically one man against you know a world of zombies um they're also kind of described as vampires i believe as well because you know they have to be killed with a stake through the heart it, it seems so then they're, they're neither zombie nor um vampire really but i think the idea that they are zombies is, is you know it, it's quite key to um what came later was night of the living dead um night of the living dead clearly references um uh, the last man on earth it, it, certainly in in the, the some of the look and the, the filming techniques are I, I, that's what i believe anyway though it, you know all reverential of course they're not it's not stealing anything um but it's interesting how playing the zombies sits between those two films as well um you know i don't know um if there's any reference point for george romero when he, he I mean, I don't think really Play the Zombies was a, a source. Um, I, I think he was more inspired by The Last Man on Earth. But it's interesting that, you know, you have these um, three films, which are, are zombie films. And in um, Last Man on Earth, it's it's very much uh, uh, the zombification has happened because of a pandemic. It's, it's like a, a, a medical um, thing, a disease. Um, it's not really 
explored hugely in terms we don't quite know exactly uh, how or why but um in uh play the zombies it's clearly um you know exploitation um using voodoo uh which is basically witchcraft and then in um night of living dead it's um reference to uh this um uh, it was referred to as the venus probe which i, I believe was a real um um project uh, and um the idea that it's actually a sort of disease from outer space uh so it gives it a science fiction edge suddenly um which you know takes it away completely away from the whole witchcraft voodoo um uh thing altogether and uh, you know the, the romero films were fantastically as a, a satire i guess on on contemporary life um intentional or not i'm not too uh, i think the jury's out on that really to what extent that was intended although obviously um dawn of the dead being set in as a big shopping mall i mean you know, clearly that the the intention is there but uh, i think it's just interesting to see those those three films you know over this short period of time how, how different they are in how they approach the uh the zombie um zombie myth if, if you want to call it that what's nice i think uh, so you you know you've got romero doing these very different for the time very different and he kind of reset what we considered the zombie film to be absolutely and he was influenced by those other films and and also i would argue um carnival of souls as well you can see carnival of souls all over the night of living dead uh, but and he did kind of take it away from those voodoo sort of roots but i think what's interesting you have dawn of the dead um and and that you know argento makes his own court which becomes really popular in italy so this leads to an unofficial official sequel um zombie 2 which becomes zombie flesh eaters but i think what's really key is that rather than continuing what romero had done fulci actually takes it back to those island roots and he reintroduces a lot of that and i think again when it comes to um romero doing day of the dead he is riffing on i would argue he's riffing on uh, as much on fulci's work as he is his own previous work well yeah it's all cannibalism there, isn't there, really? yeah yeah exactly it's yeah um, and also uh, uh, another little thing was uh, um, obviously White Zombie, for instance, and I Walk With a Zombie, um, uh, the way the zombies are represented are quite different. Although I think in White Zombie, you do get the hint of, you know, the, mm. sort of the, the sort of dead, you know, look me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because, uh, uh, and actually Last Man on Earth, of course, black and white, but when you, when you get to play with the zombies, it's full colour. So they've given zombies this kind of green, which um then you, you then see in the Romero films as well. Although I think uh, uh zombie flesh eaters don't don't go the green route, but they they go a variety of ways, I guess, with the zombie look. Um but yes, you're right though, it's interesting how that went right back to the uh um uh sort of uh Haitian roots. And um I think uh on the there's some again some colonial stuff there. Yeah, I think they're like conquistadors, aren't they? A Spanish yeah doors kind of coming back to life and uh infecting everybody um so yeah it's it's it's, it's interesting how those kind of films you know ping pong across each other uh and um with no real 
definite route uh, it seems um so you know the route to a zombie film uh, come from many different directions and i think by the time you get to things like you know walking dead on tv um you know it's anybody's guess where, where zombies come from i mean you know uh, um dead snow it's kind of a it's all over the place suddenly oh. um but yeah it's it's interesting so you've got a whole zombie genre which no longer ha has its roots in one particular place um and you know it's it's uh i don't know it's, it's where, where does one go with it i'm not too sure really though i i just go straight back to the roots myself though. um any last thoughts on plague of zombies um well i think kind of pretty much covered everything really so i mean uh uh i you know i guess that it's the the zombie walk if if, you, if there is one at all i, I think it's um you know really gave us the um stumbling lumbering you know not not you know easily brushed past kind of zombie um and you know to an extent i think romero took that as well uh and it wasn't until we probably got um you know 28 days later we we got a sort of completely different type of zombification where you can't look at people you know rushing around at high speed um and, uh, yeah just kind of that that did redefine things quite significantly i think um but yeah i i, um, I think i've pretty much covered everything <laughs> uh played the zombies and uh, you know if you haven't watched it urge you too urgently um because it's a very rewarding film i believe and also just for its place within the uh, zombie pantheon um and, or canon if you like um it, it's worth watching just to see how it fits in with what went before and what came after absolutely absolutely now i just need to say you need to please 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 follow us on our facebook t for terror facebook page our t for terror twitter page and instagram and you can listen to this podcast on a various uh range of platforms um it just remains for me to say thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on graham humphreys well thank you for um, having me as a guest it's been an absolute joy oh thank you thank you um so remember to call round next time and make yourself at home because you're probably dying for a nice cup of tea for terror and remember my friend future events such as these will affect you in the future